Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware & Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I am a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I leverage blockchain in my small business? And blockchain, I think, has been on everybody's radar screen to some extent for, I'm going to say, at least the last five years or so, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how much in the bleeding you uh, bleeding edge you are on in terms of technology, um, and uh, you know, blockchain you know so far seems to be one of these things that's always on the horizon. We haven't really hit that inflection point where blockchain appears to be everywhere. Although I'll bet you it is more prevalent than we realize. It's just not one of those things that you drive by somebody's office building and say, "Hey, they've got blockchain." So it's not necessarily all that that visible, right? And, you know, the media's attention only lasts for so long, right? They're only gonna they're only going to to really get behind and publicize something for so long. And and they don't really like gradual um improvements or gradual um incarnations or intrusions upon the status quo. They like to report the big bang because that's kind of what what, uh, what grabs headlines and click-throughs and, and so forth. But it's a mistake to think that blockchain, I think, has gone away. Uh, it's not going away. Um, it is, I believe, much more prevalent in Europe and Asia. And in fact, there's increasing regulation that is requiring blockchain to accomplish certain things in Europe that we do not have in the United States yet. Um, but I promise you, all of the big four accounting firms, all the major consulting firms, uh, continue to have blockchain on their radar screen, continue to train their people on not just the tactical implementation of blockchain, but also the, the strategic implica implications and um, opportunities that blockchain provides because, you know, it is coming. And, but it is this is one of these things that's going to be, I, I think, top down uh, because the, the, the uh, level of knowledge is so specialized and also because I think, frankly, blockchain has the biggest monetary impact on large businesses. When you think about one of the applications, say, smart contracts of blockchain, um, blockchain becomes a lot more interesting if you have 10,000 contracts than if you're a small business that has four of them, right? So the fact that you have something that, that makes four contracts more efficient, meh. Right, that that's not going to get your attention, at least not yet. If it's a, especially if it's a five or ten percent increase of efficiency, <clears throat> but eventually that's going to become, it's either going to become law, right? You're either going to see either legal ramifications or, 
in certain cases, large suppliers and customers saying, I want to do this in blockchain and we just can't do business together. Um, or the, 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 the cost benefit relationship is going to change and, and maybe the marginal, the cost savings instead of 10% or 90%. And that's going to have an impact on, um, on small businesses wanting to, to flip over to, to blockchain. So now, of course, I, I understand we're recording this on uh, May 21st, 2020. This likely is not going to be published, I think, until a month later, so mid to late June, if everything kind of holds up. And, and and I understand that everybody here is still um, in some way or another responding to coronavirus, and and, and we've published a number of, of podcasts, and I think we'll do one or two more that that talk about specific tactical responses um, to blockchain. And if you haven't listened to these, I'd encourage you to do so. We've done about five or six of these special episodes, and and you may find that, that even now they give you some some helpful tips. But, you know, a lot of people, whether you, whether you agree with it or not, and I know there's a lot of disagreement out there, are, are ready, frankly, to put coronavirus behind them and get back to some semblance of normalcy. And I'm not going to comment on whether that's the right thing or not. I'm not an expert. I can't tell you whether, whether that's the right thing or not. Um, but what I can, what I do know, or at least I strongly believe, is that you know most there are a lot of companies that are, are chomping at the bit to get back to business as usual, to not think about, about masks and infection vectors and vaccine clinical trials and constant sanitation where it turns everybody into an OC, you know an OCD patient um, but get back to kind of the strategic elements that 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 make business you know interesting and stimulating and in some cases fun and really covid has been fun for i think exactly zero people and, and so you know with respect to this topic this is sort of a small step in that direction as well um, so I'm well read on on blockchain, but I'm I'm hardly expert. And if you're a listener to this program with any regularity, you know that what we do is we bring in experts. And and boy, how do we've got a good one. So today joining us is Linda Getz. Linda is president of the Blockchain Chamber of Commerce. The Blockchain Chamber of Commerce is leading the grassroots effort to bring collaborative connectivity throughout the blockchain ecosystem in order to raise awareness, facilitate adoption, and inspire advocacy for commerce, consumers, and professionals building careers in blockchain technology. Linda, thanks for joining us in the program. My pleasure, Mike. Happy to be here. So before I get to the first question, I'm going to have question zero instead of question one because I just thought of something. How long has the Blockchain Chamber of Commerce been around? Uh, we were established the end of 2017. And if you know your blockchain history, that was right at the peak of the hype cycle. And Abraham Siong actually was the ideator of the chamber. And he was actually educating about blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies to people who were coming to classes that he was doing through the Government Contractors Association. And he found that there was a real dearth of good information. And if you know anything about hype cycles, you know that that's um, a lot of people putting out as much noise as they can to get you to look at them and invest in their token, their coin. Um, that was happening in spades in 2017. And yep. because Abe saw that, 
and he was trying to to provide quality education to the community that was connecting with him through the Government Contractors Association, he's like, something needs to change. We need to have some trusted source, you know, some resource base for people to, to be able to come to and a place for the community to gather. And that's how the, the Blockchain Chamber of Commerce was born. So yeah, I'm glad you used that term. I, I didn't want to use the hype cycle because I, I didn't want to frankly be be pejorative um but i, <laughs> oh, but no. I think we're, it, we're very open about it no worries <laughs> but but i think and that's fair so but you know and i think in some ways i wonder if the hype cycle maybe hurt blockchain a little bit because it raised expectations well ahead of where blockchain could reasonably be expected to penetrate industry yeah the, the hype cycle is just a a natural sequence of, of events that's happened in the adoption of just about every new technology, right? So it, it is really part of the adoption cycle. And when you have things hyped up that aren't true value adds, then yes, it's detrimental. Absolutely. But it, it's just part of the process. And one of the good things of having a hype cycle and then having, I guess they called it crypto winter after the 2017, 2018 timeframe, um, you know, is, is it roots out the bad actors and it, it really um, it shows them for what they are. And then the, the people that are really doing good things with the technology that continue moving forward and continue building are able to showcase the the end result of their work. Right. And so. The, the hype cycle is just part of the, the process of mass adoption. And we'll have another one um, basically, you know, run by the increasing price of Bitcoin that will fundamentally bring a greater adoption. Um, and, and the goal is to have mass adoption through education, not through the fear of missing out. Right. So we've we've had, you know, just to share my perspective, um, we've had an issue where fear has been the major driver. And at first, it's fear of the unknown, right? Um, people experience that with every new technology. They don't understand it. They don't know it. You know, it's like, ooh, you know, remember when people first used uh, credit cards on the internet? Like, wow, you know, you can just read all the commentaries around that, right? But as, as people got comfortable with it, then you had mass adoption occur. You know, same thing. We have fear of the unknown with blockchain. And the only thing that has pushed people past the fear of the unknown is the fear of missing out. So we actually have two fears at play here, right? And and that's what drives the hype cycle. People see their buddy, you know, 10xing their money and they're like, well, I don't want to miss out on that. You know, they don't have a clue about the technology, but they jump in. They're like, I'm, I'm just going to get my piece of this action. And um, that that's been what we've seen. But I believe that education is truly the key to help us go into mass adoption, not necessarily having to have the fear of missing out being the motivator, actually having people educated about what blockchain is, what value add it can bring to their business, what level of diversification it can help them bring to their portfolio. There's so many different value adds and potential pain points that people need to be educated around so that they can make informed decisions and we can have a, a, a smoother mass adoption cycle. Yeah. And in fact, I would speculate and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I would speculate that when a FOMO, a fear of missing out person jumps into blockchain and then it doesn't work out as it probably won't because they don't really know why they're doing it or how to maximize the value once they're in there. Right. That's even more damaging to the reputation because then you have one person in there that says, ah, you know what? I put 
X number of thousand dollars into blockchain or, or a cryptocurrency. We need to get into that distinction in a second. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't work out. The whole thing is vaporware, right? Which is, is grossly unfair, right? That's, that's, that's like saying, well, you know, I got into a plane, I sat in the cockpit and it didn't go anywhere. Well, right. no, you don't know how to fly. <laughs> Right. But, you know, but, 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 you know, Bombardier is going to take the hit. Right. So, um, so let's, let's dive in and sort of level set here because blockchain, I'm, I'm sure to you, it's second nature, but it is a little bit of a complex concept to somebody, especially if they're not kind of really into technology, if you know what I mean. I'm sure, you know, what I, you know, there's nobody better to define this. So what's sort of the, the simplest kind of, easiest layman's way to convey blockchain and, and its value to somebody listening to this podcast? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I'm going to assume that the majority of people on this call will have heard or participated in, let's say, a group text, right? Okay. So you think about, you know, you, you get a group text and you can look at it, you can see it, you can forward it, Right. But you can't pretend that something was sent in that group text that wasn't actually sent. You can't make one person think that that was uh, like, say, say you send a like you take the text and you switch it around and then you send it to someone who was in the group text previously and say, you know, hey, this is this is this is really what happened. They can look back, right, at their previous text and go, dude, like you're you're totally spinning this and that's not what happened. Anyone in that group text can validate the actual uh, you know sequence of messages that was sent in that group text and you can't pretend it was any different, right? So that's a little bit what the the value of blockchain is is you have data and it can be transactions, it can be um, you know, hashes of songs or, you know, evidence that you are the creator um, of a piece of content. And once it is put into one of these blocks, and I, I'm going to use a kind of a generalized blockchain because there, there are literally thousands of, of different blockchains, right? And, and they all have variances in how they function. So I don't want anyone to hear what I'm saying and be like, uh, no, that's not how the Ethereum blockchain works because they, they very well may be right. Um, you know, it may not be how the Bitcoin blockchain works, but the, the overarching aspect of, of what makes blockchain blockchain is that there are a, a series of blocks where each one has the hash of the previous block in it. And there's there's a lot of nuances that can go into that. But if you try to change something in any of the previous transactions, everybody who's in that group text, everyone that's a node or a validator on that blockchain can say, "Uh uh-uh, that's that's not correct. That didn't really happen. And your attempt to change the past is invalidated and the blocks continue forward. Um, one of the things that's a, a potential pain point is you can put faulty data into a block when it is originally formed. Okay. So when I say faulty data, I'm saying, for instance, with the Bitcoin blockchain, one of the first things that was put on it was an article that was talking about the 2008 meltdown, right? And you could have had someone, instead of putting something that was real news, put in a piece of fake news. 
and that fake news would have been held immutably in the Bitcoin blockchain for for the last you know eleven plus years. So it's a it's an immutable record. It is a way for multiple parties to interact with each other without having to know or trust each other. They trust the code and how it works, and they work within that the rules of that blockchain. So I, I don't know if that was a, a good explanation or not, but if you understand a group text and you know that, hey, everybody knows what really happened and can look back to see it, that's kind of how it is with blockchain. I think the group text is a, ba- is a great analogy, right? Because you can't, you, you can't erase all the records of history, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, and, 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 and that's the, that, that's really the key is that there's no, there's no one single point of failure that would enable you to call into question the veracity of the reliability or the, yeah, the reliability of the information. The reliability of the information that it's there, not necessarily the reliability of the information. But yes, the, that is, the that cool is there. thing, the cool thing about that though, is it gives a really high level of accountability because if you are the one that put that information there and it gets proven out as being false, then you can't pretend you didn't put it there. Yep. It's it's on you, right? So it, it does create a, a level of, of trust and accountability and responsibility um, within the ecosystem. So, so wh- what is the, we talked about cryptocurrencies a little bit. What is the difference between blockchain and cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin? I hear those terms often used um, interchangeably, and I'm not sure that's right. Yeah, one of the first things I learned was that um, blockchain was not spelled B-I-T-C-O-I-N. Okay. And um, that's a very important distinction to draw. But the, the Bitcoin blockchain was the, the first iteration um, of something built on blockchain that that the majority of people have heard about. You know, there may be some um, some some deep devs that that might have heard of blockchain previous to that, um, but that that was the first instance that the majority uh, have been exposed to. So, cryptocurrencies need blockchain to function, like they they function on blockchains. But blockchain as a technology does not require cryptocurrencies to exist or to do its job of having an immutable record. If, if, if the dollar is a currency and then we have the fed and we have the U S (laughs) mint is blockchain more like the fed or is it like the mint? I really don't want to get political on this answer. (laughs) Well, no, it's not, it's not political, but it's, it's not a question of what they should do, but a question of what their, what their current function is. Right. I mean, are they are, are they they're not they're not regulating it. Right. But the blockchain effect really issues it and just sort of keeps track of who has what. Right. Right. The, the blockchain is just the, the record. Yeah. Right. Um, so you can you can have a blockchain that one person can take and, you know, issue a billion uh, coins on that blockchain. Right. Um you can have a blockchain like the Bitcoin blockchain that is um, its design enables a, uh, a deflationary uh, aspect. So with, with the Fed, we, we have a, an institution that can print um, dollars at, at will, 
yep. right? With the Bitcoin blockchain, that's impossible. The code just mandates that only 21 Bitcoin will ever exist. And we just had the, the halvening that, that occurred where the, the block reward that's given to miners for supporting the, the Bitcoin blockchain went from 12.5 Bitcoin every 10 or so minutes to 6.25. So it, it's actually a deflationary supply that is being provided over time. And that that's something that is that is just inversely. I mean, it, it, it's so I guess polar opposite is the is the best way to, to describe it, um, you know, compared to how we've seen the, the U.S. dollar uh, function and the the inflation that has occurred with that. Um, it, it's, it's a staggering difference. Okay. So I think, I think when most people think of, of blockchain, of course, they think of cryptocurrency as, as the application. Let's set that aside for the moment. What are some of the more common applications for, of, uh, uh, blockchain aside from a cryptocurrency? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because we have loads of them. Um, there, there is in fintech, um, a lot of implementations and to a certain extent, you might say that still includes cryptocurrencies because you're transferring value, um, you know, digitally quickly using cryptocurrencies. Um, but those can be stable coins. Um, there's, there's a lot that's been done in the financial services sector. So that's a huge vertical that has been impacted just by the use of the technology, but also using the cryptocurrency side of things. Um, in, in agriculture, we actually just did an event, um, the chamber hosted where AgriLedger was, was one of the guests, um, Jean Vivier, I believe is, is, uh, the, the CEO's name, beautiful lady, uh, that has just worked with Haitians to bring their mangoes to market hmm. using blockchain technology. And it doesn't use cryptocurrency at all, but what it, what it effectively did is took farmers that were getting about 2% of the, the value of their mangoes back to them to getting 20% of the, the final value of the mangoes back to them. Huge positive impact. Um, supply chain is a, a really huge vertical that we've seen uh, fantastic impact um, through blockchain implementation. And just going, going digital with the bills of lading is a, a really key um, reducer in cost and really raises transparency and allows for, for a lot more um, seamless interaction between parties that may not know each other well or trust each other. Um, you can have smart contracts in place that, that just put rules around the transaction that if you don't meet them, then you don't get paid, you know, and, and it, it's just built into the code. It's not, it's not something that, um, you know, you have to go chase somebody across the world and, uh, you know, try to get your money back or, you know, force them to pay you. Uh, it, it's just executed automatically uh, through a blockchain. So, yeah, those are just a, a couple of, of avenues. But there's there's a lot, a lot that I could <laughs> talk about. So. so so what was the mechanism? I'm curious about this Haitian mango trade. What's the mechanism by which blockchain enabled the farmers to capture more of their values? Because it 
it took the need away for intermediaries. Is that is that what happened? The the intermediary aspect of it was was huge. Yes, they were able to disintermediate the intermediaries. Um, but yeah, it, it allowed for the the payment to everybody in the supply chain at the time of the final purchase. So if you can if you can imagine how that um, is a, is a value add. Um, it also was set up in the smart contract to penalize um, different parts of the supply chain that didn't meet the requirements that they were supposed to. And there's certain like temperature and time frames that that are mandated by the FDA in regards to food that can be sold in the U.S. So any piece in the supply chain that did not, you know, manage the temperature effectively or uh, deliver in a timely manner had a, a penalty that actually gave back to the farmer directly. So even if their mangoes couldn't go to market, they at least got that 2% that they, they would have made in the traditional, um, you know, flow of, of supply chains. So, um, you know, to, to be able to guarantee that you're going to get at least your 2%, but then have the the potential to get you know twenty plus percent uh, over. It, it's it's just it's it's going to change a lot of farmers' lives. So, where are you seeing blockchain again? Putting cryptocurrency aside, because I think that's just sort of a different animal. Um, where are you seeing blockchain have the most impact in the U.S. or or if you prefer, maybe among your your uh, chamber of commerce members? Uh, I would point to supply chain. Um, right now we, we have, and this is going to be showcased probably three weeks before this show comes out. Um, the last Thursday of this month, um, which is May, we are going to be showcasing DFM data corp, which is a member of the chamber and, you know, fun story there. You have Michael Darden, who is the president and CEO of that organization. He's been a member of the chamber for about a year. But the, the story starts back in 2004 when he wrote a patent and that patent defined digital freight matching. It's been cited over a hundred times. Um, and it has, I mean, the Walmarts, the Uber freights, the, um, you know, the, the big boys, uh, that are doing digital freight matching now all reference back into that patent. And he wrote it after he actually managed the logistics for Coca-Cola during the, the 1996 Olympics. So he, he has an interesting background in supply chain, you know, starting with his work with Coke. Um, and that coming forward, interestingly, he wrote the patent while working for another company. And because he did, the company held that patent. But right at the time I was initially meeting him a little over a year ago, that patent was reacquired by Michael. And so it's, mm. it's one of those things that, you know, at the time that he wrote it, there weren't even cell phones, you know, in people's cars. And he envisioned a time where every driver would have a digital device that could showcase, you know, where they were that could um, allow them to get information about where they should go to pick up their load. And, um, you know, blockchain really wasn't a thing that he was aware of, but, what he's come to recognize, and it was neat, you know, being part of the process with him is that he can use blockchain technology to really bring together a brand new marketplace and facilitate the most efficient digital freight matching. And the the numbers that we've seen 
I think we're going to be able to see a reduction of about 30% of carbon emissions by empty trucks on the roads. Mm. So that's, that's carbon that shouldn't be being burned, right? Yeah. And um, having efficient matching of those loads to the available drivers that have the certifications for that specific type of load and, um, you know, have the license for the different states and all of that, you know, those, those complexities can be managed by the code and you can have consistent matching of the most efficient combination of driver tractor trailer load. Um, and uh, yeah, blockchain enables that. So it's, it's definitely one of those, if, if you want to, you know, say where, where have you seen this potential? Um, I think that's, that's one of the biggest areas that, that you're going to really see um, a, a lot of benefit and value add both for the drivers, you know, for the companies um, and for the environment. So um, this is probably an unfair question, but I'm in the unfair questions business. Uh, and, and that is, is there, a, is there a, can you think of an application of blockchain that has surprised you, right? Maybe somebody's done something with blockchain. You said, you know what? Huh. I didn't think that would be something you'd use blockchain for, but there they are and they're kind of making a go of it. Um, is there anything like that out there that you can think of? Um, your listeners can look up spank chain and have an idea of some of the things that have shocked me. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like we'll just leave it at that. I would. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and maybe not do it from your work computer. It sounds like so, <laughs> um, in, in your, in your observation, what industries are being disrupted the most by blockchain, I guess, supply chain logistics, uh, and and if that would be your answer, is there a particular part of supply chain? Is it is it freight management? Is it something else? You know what what industry is really having to undergo or is being is undergoing um, uh, sharp change because blockchain has come on the scene. I as much as I'd love to point back to the the supply chain side of things because that's our focus this month at the chamber. I, I really have to point to financial services and banks. Um, and the good thing is they have been disrupting themselves. Yeah. They, they have recognized what this implementation of blockchain through cryptocurrencies, you know, through almost instant value transfer for, you know, not even pennies, like, you know, uh, hundreds of pennies, you know, per transaction. They realized that that was going to just, well, it does shake up their model of, you know, charging. Um, I, I've heard ridiculous numbers, but, you know, you send a hundred bucks, it ends up costing you $30 to, to get it, you know, to where you want it. Um, that, that just is untenable when I can take my, my digital wallet and send it to the digital wallet of anybody in the world in seconds for almost nothing. You know, so banks saw that they would be disrupted and they are also established institutions. They have relationships, they have reputations, some positive, some not. And um, they realized that they would have to shift. And, you know, the majority, um, it, it's very interesting. I think Bank of America probably has um, the most blockchain patents um, mm. of, of any organization I'm currently aware of. And that, that may have changed since I saw those numbers. But we, we have a lot of banks that have put a lot of effort into figuring out how they could use blockchain technology for, for their benefit. 
and for the benefit of their their customers and and really try to stay ahead of this adoption cycle so that they they weren't the ones disintermediated um is there an emerging application? Well, first of all, let me go back. I want, just want to re- react. You know, it, it's interesting how banks, interesting you say how banks have really taken a lead in blockchain and adopted it because they are not known for being the most forward thinking, an industry that's willing to self disrupt. Um, so that, that, that's interesting that they've embraced this. So that to me, that means that they see that the, the economics are, are, are quite compelling. That has to be it. Right. Well, absolutely. And, and I mean, <laughs> the, the JP uh, story, you know, Jamie Diamond um, basically threatened that he would fire anybody who bought Bitcoin that was on his staff. And then next thing you know, you know, JP Morgan is leading the charge. Right. And the, the story that I heard was that it was an internal, I think it was a VP that showcased the power of blockchain in some transactions. I believe it was with the the Royal Bank of Scotland. And when they saw the reduction in fees that was possible based on making it a blockchain transaction, uh, I, I think that won over um, the, the administration. So it was, it was a very interesting transition. And now obviously they're, they're leading in a lot of different aspects there and, and building network. And um, it's, yeah, I mean, they, they saw the writing on the wall um, against their, their will in many cases but you can't you can't deny that it's a disruptor, and then you either just say, "Hey, you know, like Polaroid, um, you know, we're just going to keep making this film," or you go, "Hey, we're going to bring out a better digital camera, right?" Yep. So, anyway, yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing, but it was it hasn't been an easy road necessarily during this transition time. Um, how important is regulation? for a blockchain adoption and, and how important do you think it's going to be? Is this, is, is widespread, maybe that's not even fair, is, is increased blockchain adoption going to continue to be led by the private sector in the U.S. saying, just simply seeing the value and adopting it and maybe some customers forcing their, their providers to adopt it? Or do you think regulation has a significant role to play here? I think we're at a really, really interesting time in history, and COVID-19 is playing part of the the role of making this even more interesting, but we've seen a lot of RFPs coming from government, um, both on the national and state level, and and not just here in the US, um, you know, India, Australia, there's there's been a lot of outreach from government into the private sector looking for blockchain-based solutions (laughs) to help deal with the, the current issues. That said, there needs to be kind of a catch up done with the the regulatory and legislative side of things to make sure that the the things that are in place are not going to i mean just think about when being able to have a digital signature was a big deal and you know was it valid was you know would it stand up in court you know we're we're getting that same stage now with blockchain based technologies you know, is, is you signing with your private key tantamount to you validating, you know, personally, and then you're legally responsible for that? Um, th- those are the questions that need to be answered. And there's, there's standards bodies. Uh, GS1 uh, has been working towards, you know, bringing standards to bear that are global standards 
Um, I think they're right around now completing the uh, blockchain and supply chain standards. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's a process and it, because the, the technology is so nascent and because there's so many iterations of it, building a standard that, that actually speaks to all of the possibilities is, is challenging. And, you know, we're, we're moving into, um, you know, the, the graph of things timeframe. And that's, that's a whole, that's a whole nother um, you know, way of the world working that that's almost going past blockchain and and enabling digital agency. And digital agency is um, something that another one of the members of the chamber is bringing to the table. And they have a phenomenal technology stack. Um, just to give you a, a quick, you know, awareness point, Charlie Northrup is the gentleman that that owns the technology stack. And he's the guy that saw an instance of the internet when it was just in between universities and his buddy was a professor, you know, Charlie sees this and he said, that's going to be commercialized. And his buddy's like, nah, man, this is just how we share research. Charlie went home and wrote 10 patents that defined e-commerce. And I got to sit at lunch with him a couple of months ago when he was hanging out with the guys who had helped broker the sale of his first patent stack. And one of them said, hey, Charlie, did we tell you about that email we got from the winning broker after the uh, uh, after the, the bids you know, got wrapped up? And Charlie's like, no, what, what did we say? And it uh, it was in response to the broker's request for how much more he could he could bid. And the, the email said, whatever it takes. And it was signed Bill Gates. Hmm. And so that that's the the start point. And that you know, the, the winning bid basically has been what has funded the development of this new technology stack. And at that same lunch table, Charlie said, you know what, my current, my current patent stack will dwarf my first one. Mm. And I believe it will. He, he has a way of approaching digital identity and provisioning people into the digital space, into the digital world, into digital ecospheres and ecosystems that is, is unique and is empowered by digital agents that are a brand new form of AI. So it's, 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 I mean, and it can be spun up on a Raspberry Pi. Like this is, this isn't like super complex tech. But it's it's five hundred thousand lines of code that empower his digital agent, and that agent can learn, and it can learn nouns, verbs, and modifiers, and you know, it it, it is just it is going to, I believe, usher in the fourth industrial revolution and empower us as humans to actually have agency on in in the web in the digital world. And right now, what do we do? We provision ourselves into someone else's website using a username and password. We get tracked all our activities by cookies while we're on that site. And then that information that's gleaned from our activities is then sold to sell us more. And we don't benefit from that, right? Unless, you know, I'm really happy that uh, you know, because my daughter searched up something on my phone, you know, I start getting advertising for, you know, slime or, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the, the little, you know, 10, 11 year old thing is that, that she's looking at. Um, that, that's not the way we should have our data managed. And for us as human beings to be able to take control of our data and be able to provision it 
at our own benefit to whoever we think it's most appropriately provisioned to, I think is, is, should be part of our digital rights. We're talking with Linda Getz, who is president of the Blockchain Chamber of Commerce. And um, uh, one thing I want to make sure we get to um, for this interview is there's a concept of a private blockchain and a public blockchain. Um, what are the differences between the two? Yeah, private blockchain is nodes are spun up by a, say, an institution. Um, it could be, I, I don't want to name names, but, you know, the <laughs> you guys know the big boys. They can, they can spin up, you know, 20 nodes and they can provision them to other companies that are in their trusted network. And it's distributed, but it's not decentralized. So DLT stands for distributed ledger technology. And that's, you know, blockchain and and DLT get thrown back and forth, usually as synonymous, but there are variances. Um, So you, you have this distributed ledger that is shared by multiple trusted parties. That's a private blockchain. And one central entity is responsible for determining the governance of the blockchain. And sometimes that central entity can actually be a consortia, right? So there's a, there's a group of companies that are in the decision-making process, um, but it, it's centralized. Nobody from you know, anywhere can just tap into it and interact on it. But a public blockchain does have the capacity for any, anybody, like for instance, the Bitcoin blockchain, you could spin up a, a Bitcoin um, node today if you if you wanted to participate in the blockchain. Uh, you can you can go purchase Bitcoin on on public exchanges, right? It's it's not only reserved for a elite group of people to transact on their you know specific you know business implementation um, you know blockchain instance. So that the the main difference is one is publicly accessible and is distributed to the the public and anybody can go and look at the blockchain right so you can you can use a block explorer and go see you know all of the different wallets and how much they hold and and have an awareness of what's happening on a public blockchain in a way that you can't unless you're provisioned into a private blockchain so it's the it's the provisioning into it. Who who is able to do that provisioning? Who has the right to see the data? Um, that's that's very different in a, a public and private blockchain. Are there um, are there use cases in um, uh, in in small businesses today? And you know, we've talked about supply chain a little bit. We've talked about banks. I don't think are necessarily small businesses, but. You know, the main street kind of businesses that we think of in terms of uh, retail, restaurants, bars, um, uh, things of that nature. Is there a use case or uh, creative firms, uh, consulting firms? Is there a, ca- a use case for blockchain for firms like that? There, there are multiple use cases. And one of the things that we're seeing in the ecosystem at large is the building out of platforms that are low code or no code. And they're, they're basically taking the, the business functions that a blockchain could make better, faster, cheaper, and allowing a small business to take advantage of those functions without having to create their own blockchain, spin up all their own nodes to participate. 
So that that's happening more and more. So it's going to be, you know, how creative do you want to get and, and which of your business processes do you think would benefit from the automation of, of a blockchain implementation? But, you know, for, for businesses in, in general, anybody can benefit from starting to engage with, with cryptocurrencies, um, taking payment in cryptocurrencies, um, paying their suppliers, uh, you, you reduce costs across the board. You know, you're, you're not having to pay, um, you know, possibly a, a MasterCard or a Visa, you know, one to 3% on every transaction. Um, it, it can reduce costs, uh, for anybody who's willing to say, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in starting to explore this. I'm interested in a deflationary currency rather than an inflationary currency. I'd like to diversify, you know, it's there's there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I believe every business and any human being gets value from diversification, and that's what I see uh, both the the cryptocurrency side of things and the the blockchain implementation. It's it's diversifying. It's it's saying you know all my eggs aren't in the same basket. I'm not dependent on just one way of doing business. I am making the choice to diversify. And I think it's diversification is going to determine our destiny. And, and that's as, as individuals and as companies. Uh, so we're running out of time, but I have a couple of more questions that I do want to uh, want, want to get to. And one is in, in your, in your view, and I'll bet you see this a lot. How is blockchain most frequently misunderstood? How is it most frequently misunderstood? Um, yeah, is there a common misconception around that about what blockchain can do, can't do, that you find yourself having to or needing to educate people about? I think probably saying that it is a trustless way of doing business is something that just saying that is confusing. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the way that some people take that and say, you know, Hey, you know, if it's on the blockchain, it's immutable and, and it's, it's correct. And it's like, no, no, that doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. You know, going back to the, the example I gave near the beginning around the, the fake news. If you put fake news on the blockchain, on any blockchain, it's, it's still fake news and it, it doesn't engender trust and it's, it's, you know, the fact that it is immutable does give a, a responsibility point to whoever posted it, but it, it doesn't make it truth and it doesn't make it trustworthy. So I, that, that's something that has, has been a kind of a scratch your head, you know, when, when you hear people talking about the, <laughs> that aspect of, of blockchain. So. Okay. I think that's a great point. I, and I, th I, th I would agree with that. I think that is the most widely misunderstood other than blockchain and Bitcoin being the same thing. I, I think the other, the misunderstood part is that, is that because it's blockchain, therefore it's true. Mm. When in, in fact, it's only as true as the, the veracity of the data when it was first entered into the blockchain ledger. If it was right. false to begin with, it's false all the way through. Yep. And it's provable that somebody put it in false and that, yeah, that's, that right. is, so that, that's a value add for sure. There's that but, accountability that yeah. you're talking about, right? Absolutely. So there's, there's no dilution there. 
Um, Linda, this has been great. Um, there's more to this topic than we can possibly cover in an hour. Absolutely. How can people contact you for more information? Yeah, blockchainchamber.org is our website. The blockchainecosystem.io platform is another one I'd like to welcome all of your, your listeners to come to. It's a great place to connect with people. I don't like calling people experts, but experienced contributors um, to blockchain technology um, can be found there. And I would be happy to have anyone reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, my name is spelled G-O-E-T-Z-E. So Linda Getz. Um, it's, I'm, I'm one of the few on there. I don't think you'll have any trouble finding me. So I uh, would be happy to connect uh, with your audience and, and the community that's listening uh, to this podcast today. Well, thanks very much. Um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I would like to thank Linda Getz of Blockchain Chamber of Commerce so much for joining us and sharing her expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Warren Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <music>